There once was a 16-year-old girl named Dorothy who woke up in a strange land after receiving a bump on the head. She met three strange men on the way to see the wizard. One of these had no courage, the other heartless, and one of them wasn't all that bright. On her travels, she was being chased by a person who believed that she had killed his brother. The wizard is an androgynous glam rock star, and the fantasy land she traveled in was the gritty land of Australia. On this episode, I talk about the 1976 film Oz, or 20th Century Oz for those in the United States. The man responsible for me watching this movie is named Russell. Am I going to thank Russell, or curse Russell for making me watch this movie? Find out at the end of today's episode. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkies. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Hello there. Welcome to Episode 3 of Celluloid Days, my new podcast of film and film history. This is the third Friday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about a film recommended by a listener. For those new to the podcast, I will watch any movie recommended by a listener, as long as I can find it and it's a bit obscure, and then I will either celebrate the listener or curse their name for all eternity. Now, when I first began talking about a film podcast, Russell, a longtime listener of my old podcast, Coffee with Jeff, sent me a message through Facebook telling me I should check out a film called Oz from 1976. He also let me know that in America it was called 20th Century Oz. It's an Australian film, and I assume Russell is Australian as well. Now, I found copies of this film both on YouTube and archive.org, and since there will be spoilers, including me talking a lot about the end, I suggest you stop this recording right now and watch it first. Now let's find out if Russell is to remain on my good side. So I began watching this film without knowing anything about it, except that it was from the land down under. I assumed it was a takeoff on The Wizard of Oz, but I really wasn't sure. Now it begins with a local rock band playing at what appears to be a small bar or maybe a community center. Or something like that. You know, there's soft drinks being served and that type of thing. It's dance night and the band is called Wally and the Falcons. They're doing a 70s style hard rock song. And only a few people are actually watching the band and dancing. Enter two girls, a blonde and a brunette. They begin watching the group with excitement. And a couple of the musicians take notice of them. Now, at this point, I began to think that maybe this wasn't a takeoff on the classic film, but more of an Australian coming-of-age film. Hey, I really wasn't sure. But back to the movie. Later that evening, after the show was over, the two girls help the band pack up their equipment into an old van, and all six leave together. They're driving at night, and we, as an audience, start to get a glimpse of each band member, 
characteristics that make me think my original idea might have been right. You see, the bass player is not all that bright, and the guitarist is a bit of a chicken. The drummer is only interested in making out with one of the girls right there in front of everybody. And as they barrel down the road, the brunette and the drummer are really going at it, while the singer is trying to make moves on the blonde girl, but the blonde girl's having none of it. The bass player is driving, and the guitarist is sitting in front next to him, but they can't help but watch the drummer and the girl make out, as she's very close to losing her shirt. Because the driver isn't watching the road, they crash. The blonde girl steps out, falls to the ground with a head injury. Suddenly she finds herself wandering around the fantasy world of backwoods Australia. Lost and confused, she wanders into a small shop that sells clothing run by Glynn, the good fairy. It's at this point we find out her name is Dorothy, and also at this point that I am now sure that this is a takeoff on The Wizard of Oz. Glenn tells her that the van she was riding in killed a young thug, but it's okay because no one in the town really liked him, and they're sort of glad that he's dead. So he gives her, free of charge, a pair of sparkling red pump shoes. Moments later, another thug, who looks a lot like the bouncer from the club at the beginning of the movie, walks in. He's the brother of the man killed, and he vows to get revenge. Dorothy notices a psychedelic poster of a rock star named The Wizard. The Wizard looks exactly like the singer from Wally and the Falcons. Glenn tells her that he's performing in the city that very night, but this will be his last show as he's retiring. For some reason, Dorothy decides that she must go to the show, and Glenn tells her that if she wants to get there, she'll have to hitchhike down the road. So yes, I was right. This is The Wizard of Oz. It's definitely 100% confirmed. So Dorothy, with the ruby red shoes on, travels down the road to see the wizard with an angry man following behind. As she walks, a song comes on called Living in the Land of Oz by Ross Williams. It's a good 70s rock tune. Soon she meets up with the dim-witted bass player, who's now a surfer, who doesn't know where he's going. His car is a flat tire, and he's attempting to fix the tire with the jack upside down. Dorothy helps him out, and she ends up riding with him to find the city. As they travel together, a song starts playing called Beating Around the Bush by Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. If you ask me, it's another pretty good rock song. And you know what? I really enjoyed most of the music in this movie. I thought it, it worked really well. Of course, I am an old man who grew up in the 70s. And though I'm unfamiliar with the tunes in this film, it did bring me back to an earlier time in my life. Now as I watch, I'm already thinking, okay, I know this is The Wizard of Oz, and we've met the Scarecrow. 
So next, if we follow the classic film chronologically, we'll meet the Tin Man, and then soon after the Cowardly Lion, and then the four will be off to see the wizard. I can see where this is going. My excitement dropped a bit. I mean, if this is just going to be a takeoff on the classic film, I'll always have a pretty good idea of what's coming next. But to my surprise, it wasn't like that. While it's based on the classic film, the story takes many twists and turns that I wasn't expecting. Instead of going on a trip with all three, Dorothy is first with the surfer, then she rides for a while with the mechanic, who is the Tin Man, and then hops on a motorcycle with a biker who is our cowardly lion. The film is a reimagining of the story with a good combination of elements from the original story with a lot of originality. And the film is so 1970s. Me, because I know nothing about Australian cinema, I'll let Russell tell you about it as he sent me some information. Now, it is tempting for me to try to do an Australian accent as I read Russell's words, but hey, that would just be insulting to everybody in Australia, if not the whole world. So I'll just read it as myself. Australia was a prolific film producer in the pioneering days of filmmaking. The first feature film of any kind was being made here in 1906, Story of the Kelly Gang. But from the 1940s to the 1960s, the industry became moribund, with only the occasional local feature or visiting Hollywood epic like On the Beach to liven things up. However, in the 60s, independent and experimental filmmakers began producing short films which screened at local and international festivals, as well as some of the earliest rock music clips. World-famous director Peter Weir is a product of this period, as is Rocky Horror Picture Show director Jim Sharman. But another leading light was Chris Levian. He had produced a number of shorts, but really attracted notice for his 1971 music clip of Ross Wilson's hit song Eagle Rock, which he had shot while Ross's Cool Daddy band toured Australia. Rather than just a straight film of the band performing, he had constructed it like a movie short with the band members acting in between intercut footage of them on tour. Also in 1971, the Australian comedy Stork, about a lanky wannabe revolutionary, became a surprise success both with the public and the critics and touched off what would be known as the Australian New Wave Cinema. This sudden interest allowed the experimental and short filmmakers to move into features. Chris looked for something he thought would work, and while working in London in the early 70s, came up with the idea to do The Wizard of Oz as a rock and roll road movie. He was probably influenced by the stage success of Charmin's Rocky Horror Picture Show, which had revamped 30s horror movie themes with rock and roll and a quirky 70s transsexual theme. Through his work with Ross Wilson, he knew he had access to a lot of Australian rock and roll people, and was also very familiar with the British glam rock scene, and especially David Bowie. As Russell said, it was written and directed by Chris Levine, an Australian filmmaker who began making films at a young age. He has only a handful of films on IMDb. A website called Melbourne Independent Filmmakers says this about Chris. Chris Levine began making films at the age of 10 on 8mm. He quickly graduated to 16mm with a series of shorts in the mid-60s that were both recognized in Australia and overseas. 
Under the influence of the Cantrills and the Melbourne experimental film scene, he made his first feature, Part 1806 in 1971. He followed this with the 35mm cinema feature Oz, a rock and roll road movie in 1976, which has just recently been restored by Screen Sounds and is out on DVD. Along the way, he has made numerous music clips, famously for Spectrum and Daddy Cool, and has recently returned to the fray of creative filmmaking with a couple of experimental works on DV. Strangely, Oz was the last film directed by Chris. Apparently, that was because the film failed with the Australian public. But as Russell pointed out, it became a huge hit in the States, but Russell wasn't sure how much Chris benefited from its success. The star of the film was the beautiful Joy Dunstan as Dorothy, who, as far as I can tell, only acted in this one film. But she does a pretty damn good job. According to Wikipedia, she was a 25-year-old former school teacher and a part-time cabaret dancer who had been working in a musical comedy act at Melbourne's Flying Trapeze Cafe when she was discovered by Chris Levine. Levine offered the part to Dunstan. He said to her, Come with me and I'll make you a star. Joy replied, I don't believe you, but yes. She had no prior experience in film or photographic modeling prior to the movie, and it appears she only did a handful of TV before quitting the business. The bass player Surfer is the only actor I recognized. He is Bruce Spencer, who was in films like The Car That Ate Paris in 1974, The Road Warrior in 1981, or Mad Max 2, To Anyone Outside the USA, and Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith from 2005. In fact, Bruce has a pretty impressive resume with over 100 credits to his name. And either everyone in the film is short, or Bruce is huge. An internet search showed that he's 6 foot 6 or 198.1 centimeters tall. Michael Carmen plays the drummer-slash-mechanic-slash-tin man. While unfamiliar to me, he has quite a few credits on IMDb, including a lot of Australian TV. Gary Waddell plays the guitarist, biker-slash-cowardly lion. Again, I don't know anything about him, but he also has a lot of credits on IMDb, including many appearances on Australian TV. You know, at this point I'm thinking that, you know, we get a lot of British TV in the USA, but I don't think we get any from Australia. I feel that I should know these actors, and I hope I'm not being insulting by not knowing who they are. Graham Matters is sort of the Frank Morgan from the MGM film. In the classic 1939 film, Frank plays Professor Marvel, the gatekeeper, the carriage driver, a guard, and the wizard. Graham Matters plays the singer Wally, the record salesman, a tram conductor, and the wizard. Graham only has a small amount of acting credits. According to Wikipedia, he was in the original Australian cast of the Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1974. Graham, who unfortunately passed away last year, was also a friend of Russell, the gentleman who provided much of today's information. So I'm sorry to hear about his passing, Russell. Robin Ramsey is the good fairy Glynn. Robin had a fairly long acting career, and, according to Wikipedia, trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Interestingly, according to Wiki, he is now a curator of the Forest Retreat Sanctuary Australia. The treat is run on the Brahma Kamaras principles, while embracing a cruelty-free diet and lifestyle. 
That is to say, vegan. So the film was made on a low budget for around $150,000. That's Australian dollars, which according to a conversion site I found on the internet, that's a little over $100,000 in U.S. money. That's almost nothing for a film. I also read that he had about $260,000 in Contra deals, which I guess is for product placement and stuff? I don't know. It was shot in five weeks. And the film looks every bit a low-budget enterprise, and I don't mean that in a bad way, because I think Chris did a lot for a little money. And that makes me appreciate the movie even more. So now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff, what did you think of this film? Well, all in all, I enjoyed it. I like the fact that it didn't follow the original story beat for beat, though I have to admit I thought the end fell a little flat. I don't think it was made all that clear why she felt she had to go to see the wizard. I guess it had something to do with her fascination with the singer, I don't know. I mean, in the original Wizard of Oz, we know Dorothy is trying to get home, and and she believes the wizard is her only hope. And in the end, of course, she learns that there's no place like home. In this film, Dorothy... Well, let me explain. And this will be a spoiler to the end of the film, so if you hadn't seen it, you've been warned. The young girl finally gets to see the final concert of the wizard, who is a glam rock star, complete with makeup and many stage effects. She is soon kidnapped by the dead thug's brother, who forces her to strip as he attempts to rape her. She is saved by her three friends and a well-placed kick to the crotch with her ruby shoes. Now there is a slight bit of nudity here, but it's very quick and it's the only nudity in the film. So the foursome goes to the party at the wizard's hotel and Dorothy finds the wizard in a shower singing very badly. You see, she sees the man behind the curtain. In this film, the curtain is literally a shower curtain. She strips and joins him in the shower, and he explains that the whole act is fake, that he has no talent, it's all tricks, and he is controlled by his agent. So in the end, the big lesson that Dorothy learns is this. Fortune, fuck you up. Great, now this episode's going to get tagged for bad language. Oh well. So what does that mean? She has learned not to be a groupie anymore? I didn't even know that was an issue with the young lady. I think the film would work better if she had an absolute need to see the wizard and learned something important about herself in the end. But perhaps I just don't get it. Or maybe it was the director reflecting on his own experiences in rock and roll. I'm not really sure. Anyway, she wakes up after that back at the place of the van accident with all her friends looking at her. Don't think that my criticism of the end of the film means I didn't like it. As I previously stated, I did enjoy it and I'm glad I saw it. And even though I wasn't familiar with the music, I liked the songs as well.
Now, while I might have had a problem with the end of this film, I must say that I did have a problem with the end of the original 1939 film as well. I mean, why does Dorothy want to go back home? She wants to leave the bright and colorful, exciting world of Oz, only to go back to the dull black-and-white farm in Kansas? And what does she even have in Kansas? As far as I know, she has no parents, siblings, or friends. Just an aunt and uncle who locked her out of a storm cellar during a twister, and a couple of goofy farmhands. You know, I always thought at the very end of the film, if you wanted to end it with Dorothy back in Kansas, that should have been filmed in color, or at least with some color. You know, at the beginning, she sees their world in black and white. That's her life on the farm. But after being in Oz, she begins to see canvas a little differently, maybe with a splash of color. And it's also odd that was a Hollywood film. Hollywood, a place where many young women leave their rural lives to become stars, just like Dorothy going to Oz. But anyway, I'm here to talk about the 1976 film. One thing Russell points out that the big concert at the end by The Wizard was filmed at the Meyer Music Bowl, a big performance venue located in Australia's Botanical Gardens. He says that's equivalent to our Hollywood Bowl. They were shot at a real rock concert so they wouldn't have to pay thousands of extras to be an audience, and the stage would already be set up. The concert was an ACDC one, so Graham had to appear in the glammiest of rock outfits in front of thousands of headbanging Sharpies. So, Russell, on the count of wasting Jeff's time with an inferior film, the court finds you innocent. My time wasn't wasted. I thank you for recommending this film, and I'm glad I watched it. This film is different, and different, in my mind, is usually good. I get bored with the same old, same old thing. I mean, how many times can you watch a person with magical powers save the universe? It strikes without warning, wreaking death and destruction too horrible to behold. A force of evil that tortures its victims and hurls them mercilessly to the brink of murder and madness. What is it? And what does it crave, this creeping horror that hungers and thrives on human flesh while it inhabits its own silent world that no man can penetrate? No one is safe from its spell of destruction. A cold, hypnotic stare striking fear into the hearts of all, creating a frenzied nightmare for those who behold it. The cloud is splitting up. Splitting up. There are four of them now, and all moving this way. So, I thank you for listening to my talk about the 1976 film from Australia, Oz. If you have a film that you think I need to see, please let me know. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Coffee with Jeff being all one word. The more strange, unusual, and obscure, the better. Now, for the fourth week of each month, I think I'm going to talk about a Rift movie. You know, one that's been on MST3K, The Film Crew, Cinematic Titanic, Rift Tracks, or The Mads. I'll talk about both what I thought of the riffing and what I thought of the original movie. So next week, I'm going to talk about the film The Crawling Eye from 1958, 
For those outside the U.S., it's known as the Trollenberg Terror. It was the first film riffed on Mystery Science Theater when it began on the Comedy Channel. I am going to skip all the KTMA TV era films. So I hope you'll join me. And as of this week, my podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. So I think you can find it everywhere you find quality podcasts. I got to get around to setting up a Facebook page for Celluloid Days. So if you want to send me a message, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. I also have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, a Coffee with Jeff Twitter page, and even a Coffee with Jeff website. For right now, that's where you can reach me. And you know what? If you can leave me a review, hopefully a good review, at the place you use to download my podcast or stream my podcast, I would be forever grateful. Anyway, take care, stay healthy, and I'll be back next Friday. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.